Hi, this is Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 72, Unsubstantiated Claims. If you follow space science on a regular basis, you're probably aware of a standard set of maybe items that are raised any time something inexplicable happens. So, for example, if we receive an unexpected radio signal from deep space, maybe it's aliens. String theory can be explained by appealing to compactified extra dimensions that no one can measure. And astronomy itself regularly categorises inexplicable things as dark. And of course all these things are possible, they're just not substantiated. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, are there really primordial black holes? Well, theoretically. The idea behind primordial black holes is that in the early dense universe, random quantum fluctuations may have created little hiccups in the otherwise rapid and density-reducing expansion that the universe was undergoing, which then led to the formation of black holes. However, the key words here are could have. And it's always worth donning your sceptical goggles whenever quantum fluctuations are called upon to explain some weird physics concept with no evidence to back it up. It is the case that the cosmic microwave background, while remarkably uniform in most respects, does show there were some density variations in the early universe, which may underlie the distribution of light and dark matter across the current universe. So it is reasonable to assume there were genuine quantum fluctuations in the early universe, and, particularly during the very early rapid expansion phase of the universe, those fluctuations may have had a big influence on the way the subsequent universe unfolded. If primordial black holes formed at all, they most likely formed towards the end of the rapid inflation phase, the idea being that as the outward movement of things decelerated, there may have been a lot of local clumping as stuff ran into the back of other stuff. Maybe. Stephen Hawking was a proponent of primordial black holes, hypothesising that they might have come in a whole range of sizes, from very small to very large, although the small ones probably evaporated early on due to Hawking radiation. Others have suggested the larger ones might have been the seeds of the supermassive black holes found at the centre of most galaxies, since current galaxy evolution thinking is that galaxies formed around central black holes rather than the galaxies coming first, and their central black holes coming later. Although black holes certainly are dark, they are not a good candidate for dark matter since they are not transparent. So they can still occult distant objects when they pass in front of them, and they should produce gravitational lensing effects. So if black holes made up the majority of dark matter, they would need to be as ubiquitous and widely distributed as dark matter is So, for example, you would look over at the Andromeda galaxy and see lots of black spots and visual distortions rather than the clear, steady image that we do see. 
This is why Marchers, massive compound halo objects like black holes, neutron stars, brown dwarfs and the like, have been pretty much ruled out as making more than a small contribution to the total amount of the universe's dark matter. Machos might be dark, but they're not invisible, because they're not transparent. All that said, we do find small numbers of microlensing anomalies across various sky surveys, not in numbers anywhere near being able to account for dark matter, but there definitely are some. But these days, most of those anomalies are being picked up by exoplanet surveys, and the general feeling is that that's what they are, exoplanets. Recently, a primordial black hole has been proposed to explain the allegedly strange orbits of a number of trans-Neptunian objects, which have been hypothesised to be caused by the hypothetical Planet Nine. But until there's observational evidence of what's really going on out there, it's largely a case of pick your preferred hypothetical object. So, that is pretty much the current state of primordial black hole science. You don't really need them to solve any major cosmological mysteries, and while it's true that they could have formed in the early universe, it's not clear that they necessarily had to. And it's unlikely they are present in large numbers in the current universe, since their presence would be readily detectable if they were. So, Occam's razor suggests they're not really worth worrying about until we actually find one. Some of the recent gravitational wave observations do appear to be the result of collisions by unexpectedly mid-range black holes. That is, somewhere between stellar-sized and supermassive. But whether they're primordial mid-range black holes is another question entirely. This is the middle bit. So, of course, there could be some primordial black holes out there, but based on the evidence available to us at the moment, it's just as likely that there's no primordial black holes out there. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, but it's not evidence of presence either. And now, here's another unsubstantiated claim. Dear Cheap Astronomy, what do you make of the helical drive? Well, not much. But in this case, the author of the idea deserves credit for acknowledging it might be up there with the EM drive and cold fusion. He just thought it was an idea worth putting out there for review. Various journalists have picked up the story by claiming the helical drive violates the laws of physics. Which is certainly not the case. It would only violate the laws of physics if it worked. The basic problem you're up against in flying through empty space is that there's nothing to grab onto. You can drive a car on Earth, and indeed drive a solar car on Earth without carrying fuel or propellant, because you're essentially pulling yourself along the surface of the road, using energy to rotate your wheels. You can do much the same in an electric plane, which has no fuel or propellant, it just pulls itself through the atmosphere. But, in empty space, there's nothing to grab onto to pull yourself along, so your only option is to throw something out the back, so that Newton's third law, the one about actions and opposite reactions, works to push you forward. Nonetheless, the idea of a space engine that doesn't need propellant is compelling, 
since it would greatly reduce the mass you have to fly. So it is always worth at least thinking about new ways forward. Small astronomy joke there. The idea behind the helical drive is to move mass around in your spacecraft. The helical drive is basically a particle accelerator which moves small charged particles around a track that's shaped like a helix where the particles move slower in one part of the accelerator than in another part. And if there's particles that always move faster on one side than on the other and they're moving really fast, like 0.999% of the speed of light fast, then their increased relativistic mass at the higher speed should generate more momentum in one direction than the other. But no, it doesn't work. It might sound like it would work if you just consider two separate states of inertia. But to make one state of inertia where the particles move fast, and another state of inertia where the particles don't move as fast, the particles will have to be accelerated at one point, and then decelerated at another point, to get you the speed difference, and hence the relativistic mass difference. So there has to be a period over which you are accelerating a non-relativistic mass, and then decelerating a relativistic mass. So in the end, the balance of forces, and the relativistic and non-relativistic momentums, all just balance out to give you a net effect of zero. It's implied in the helical drive design that the geometry of the path of the accelerated particles is what ensures that all the speeding up and slowing down operate to create momentum in one preferential direction, but that doesn't really make sense. At the end of the day, all the pushing and the pulling is between the spacecraft and those inner moving particles. So the geometry of the vectors involved doesn't really matter. You could achieve something like the effect of a reaction wheel, which can change the attitude of a spacecraft, turning it upside down, say, but you can't push and pull against your own spacecraft to change its direction or its speed through a vacuum. And if all you want to do is to turn your spacecraft upside down, why not just put some reaction wheels on board, which are existing technology, whereas a space-going helical-shaped particle accelerator is not. So from our cheap analysis of the situation, the person who proposed this idea thought there was something useful in the relativistic mass gained from accelerating particles up to the speed of light, but they perhaps hadn't considered all the pre- and post-steps involved in achieving and sustaining that state. There is some similarity between the helical drive idea and one of the so-called Mach effects, specifically the Woodward effect. There are different underlying mechanisms, but the Woodward effect and the helical drive both rely on arguments about relativistic physics operating in specific states of inertia, while the critics of those arguments point out that once you add in the effects of the acceleration and subsequent deceleration needed to enter and depart those states of inertia, the net effect is zero. That sounds about right to us. This is the end bit. So, there you go. There are lots of things to think about in science, and particularly in space science. In the absence of substantiating evidence, it's best not to get too carried away, but such unsubstantiated claims 
are still interesting possibilities. Worth thinking about, even if that thinking leads you to the conclusion that it's probably bollocks. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to float a hypothesis, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll try not to sink it. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.